This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're going to look at Romans 8. Uh, I'll read verse 1, which we looked at last week, and then I'm going to go through 4 today. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we don't presume upon you in any way, but we do ask you with faith that you would do a fresh work in, in our lives and in our church with regards to gospel freedom. We pray that the good news would get louder in our ears and the word of condemnation would be silenced. We pray the, the words which, which accuse us, Lord, and falsely accuse us as distanced from you and unloved by you and condemned by you. We pray those voices would be silenced, the voice of the enemy, the voice of the flesh, and we pray the voice of the Spirit announcing the good news of the resurrected Savior would sound in our hearts and would bring us into the freedom that you've bought for us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in spectacular ways in our hearts, giving us a vision of Christ, giving us hope for the future in our lives, and changing our appetites, our desires, and our attitudes. Lord, wash over us with grace today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you weren't here last week, I might recommend just listening so you could at least be caught up because what we talked about last week is the foundation for the whole chapter. And it's verse 1. I'm going to give a little review here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That This is an overwhelming statement. This is a shattering statement piece of news. This is a life-altering reality, or it's intended to be a life-altering reality that for the Christian, that we are innocent before God. And it's even better than that. We are not only innocent before God because Jesus died to pay for our sins. We are actually declared righteous before God. That God relates to us, views us, connects with us, communes with us from the position of righteousness. The the, the Bible term for that, the theology term for that is justified. We are justified. And so today as a Christian, you are accepted before God. Completely accepted. You are completely welcomed before God. In terms of how God views you and relates to you, you are in Christ. You are connected to him. You are welcomed, accepted, and nothing can change that. You are under God's favor. I don't know how you feel today, but I know what the Bible says, that there's no condemnation, and so you are under the favor of God. And it's an unmerited favor. That means we didn't do anything to earn his favor, and we can't do anything to forfeit his favor. Favor. It is unmerited favor to those who deserve judgment. But he says there is no judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Deserve judgment, will never receive judgment. God doesn't relate to us today as those who are judged. He relates to us as those who have no condemnation. You have eternal favor. All of your sins, if you're a Christian, past, present, and future are dealt with. All you know is the grace of God. All you know is the acceptance and the welcome 
of God today. And the second part of the chapter, or rather the last part of the chapter, we looked at verses 31 through 39, and they make this point. Here's kind of the big idea, that nothing can separate us from his love, that we're not only welcomed, accepted. There's not only this legal statement over our lives, declared righteous. There's not only that, but there is the love of God. We are loved personally by God, cared for, provided for, intimately loved by God. The Bible is going to say in this chapter later that we are children, that we he's chosen, he's adopted us and showered his love as an adopting father up on us. And so it, we're loved and that can't be changed. You can't act in a way to remove yourself from the love of God. Sorry, you're stuck with that good news, that glorious news, that eternal news. You can't act in a way to to cause God to withdraw his favor or his acceptance over your life because of what Christ has done. And this is a truth that is now. No one can separate us. That's now and in the future. And, and we're not condemned. Verse 1, one of, the, one of my favorite words in this whole chapter is in verse 1, now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not just, well, I was converted and I believed in Jesus and so all my sins were erased right then. But man, since then, whoa. So I was, no, he says, now there is no condemnation. Or some of us think, well, if I improve and I grow and I mature, I will be more acceptable to God when I'm different. No, he says, now, now, there is no condemnation now. Not just when we get to heaven, but right now. And so this chapter starts out with this statement that defines our identity. This says more about you than anything else. This defines your identity in God. Now, he's going to say more in the chapter, but this is the starting place that we're not condemned and later in the chapter that we are loved. Now, before I move on from this, I want to revisit it with this idea in mind and kind of hammer the nail again for another Sunday. It's not enough to just intellectually know this. You know, it's not enough to have this fact so that if you were given a theology test and the first question was, is there any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? So that you could answer and say, no, there is not. And you got the fact. We should know the fact. We should know the scripture. We should understand theology. Yes. But it's not enough to just merely know this fact. Do you think that God went to this extreme, extravagant demonstration and expression of his love to become a man and to die and suffer and die for our sins so that we would understand a fact intellectually. I can't believe that God went to all of that just so that we would have some awareness of this truth. God wants this truth to be emblazoned on our soul. God wants this truth to melt our heart. God wants this truth to be our vision so that we look at our life, we react to our circumstances with this truth as our foundation, that this is the foundation of our Christian life, that there's no condemnation, that we are loved, that we are favored, that we are accepted, that it's not just intellectual. We want to live out of that truth. I mean, here's the reality. We have his approval and folks, it is okay to enjoy that. It's not going away. We, we can celebrate that. It's not like, well, if I get too excited about that, I, I, it could leave. Everything I really hope for always vanishes. So if I really, really want God's acceptance and love, I'm sure the minute I do, no. You, you can enjoy it. I, I believe we should enjoy this truth. We have eternal love, God's eternal love for us, his inseparable love. You are free to believe that. You are free to live in the intellectual knowledge of the love of God. Yes, yes, definitely. And the felt love of God. We, we can live with an awareness of God's love so that it touches our affections. It touches our soul. It touches our emotions, that we live with an awareness of the love of God. God wants that for us, I believe. You have the smile of God over your life. So it's okay to smile and be happy about the fact 
that I will never face condemnation from God. That'll be glorious when we see him face to face and we're welcomed into his presence. That'll be glorious beyond what any of us can imagine. But I don't think the glory just starts there. The glory of this truth is for today as well. Not just one day, though that is our longing. Our longing is that day. But there's a truth now that it's okay to smile about verse 1. It's okay to celebrate this truth. There's a, there's a book, this is the book I was reading in my devotions when I was affected by Romans 8.1. There's a book we have at the Resource Center. Um, I, was, I heard that we sold out the first service, but then I also heard that someone went into some of the pastor's offices and grabbed their personal copies, which had not been read. They just got them this week. So now we have, uh, we have actual copies in there, not just any copies, copies that were probably at one, one time in Pete's office and Rob's office, so that's a special. This, this is a lot better copy than the people in the first service got. But it's called Supernatural Living for Natural People, the life-giving message of Romans 8. It's written by uh, Ray Ortland, uh, who is a pastor and a church planter in Nashville. And it's just an outstanding book. It's been affecting me. I, I can't really commend the cover that much. It's got a guy, I, I don't know, uh, anyway. But I love the book. I love the book, and I highly recommend uh, this so you can get it out there. But in that book, Ortland asked this question. He says, can it be wrong to relish a sense of his approval? I mean, some of us are a little nervous relishing the approval of God. Could, how could it possibly be wrong to celebrate, enjoy, experience the freedom of God approves me? You don't have to worry about that. Don't feel guilty about that. Don't feel guilty about celebrating. There's no guilt. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I, I, oh, I'm kind of, maybe I'm enjoying this too much. No! We can enjoy the favor of God. Verse 1, there is an unqualified acceptance in Christ. He doesn't build qualifications. He doesn't say, there is therefore now no condemnation and then's the fine print. There's not an asterisk that says, look down and look at the legal fine print, which says, yeah, it's pretty good. But when you really look into it, there, well, there is this kind of way that you could forfeit uh, God's favor and you could be condemned. That's not on there. You ever listen to those commercials where the guy longer than the commercial is all the legal stuff where it's, it's really quick at the end of the commercial? You know, it's like, no, 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 which is like, uh, none of the, nothing we just said may be true and we're not held responsible for it because here's the fine print. Or those drug commercials. It's not like the drug commercial which says, you can be free from seasonal allergies. In some cases, death may occur. I mean, it's not, it's not like, it's not like, okay, this is really good, but, but I know I'm just waiting. It sounds good because in a minute, the voiceover guy is going to come tell us and say, well, yeah, it's pretty good, but, and in some cases, death. That there's going to be this other sort of reality. That, that just doesn't come anywhere in the Bible. There's not this other place where it's not going to be true. And so if God expressed his love for us in the sacrifice of Jesus, wouldn't he want us to experience that? If he says nothing can separate you from the love of God, isn't it likely that God wants us to tap into that and experience that in our lives? I think so. Derek Thomas, who is a Presbyterian pastor, uh, wrote about Romans 8. And after verse 1, he says, A million questions arise, not the least of which is this, How can God possibly love me so much? That may not be the question we're all asking. See, this, this chapter, it's bookend. It starts with no condemnation, verses 30, verse 1, verses 31 through 39, no separation from the love of God. So what I can tend to do, what you may tend to do at times is say, I, does God really love me? We look around at our circle, does God really love me? But when we look to Christ and what he's done and what God reveals of his character here, the question is, how could God love me so much? The question is not, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, the question is not, does, does God approve of me? The question is, how could it be possible that God could approve of me anymore? There, what else could he say or do? No condemnation ever. Forgiving all of my sins in Christ, past, present, future. I'm joined to Christ. I'm in Christ. There's nothing more he could say that's any better than that, that's any more truthful than that. See, Romans 8 changes the question from, does God approve me to I want to relish the approval of God because of what Christ has done. I want to relish 
the no condemnation status because of what Jesus has done for me. This truth of justification, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's not just, it's not only the basis for our conversion in the past, it is, but it's a truth that we're to carry with us in our Christian lives. So as we are maturing in the Lord, sanctification, as we are being conformed to the image of Christ, as we are, uh, as God is doing that work in our lives, we take this truth with us. We don't leave it back there. So let's say, I'm a conversion, no condemnation. I left that there. Now I'm on my own. No, we carry that with us. We don't, well, we don't really carry it with us. It's just our identity. It's just the reality. You can't leave it. Whether you carry it or not, you can't leave it. You can't leave no condemnation status if you're a believer in Jesus. It is who you are. Here's the problem many of us face uh, with this, and that is that we, we can tend to forget this. See, we can tend to have a roller coaster Christian life, an emotional up and down Christian life. And here's how it works. Rather than believing that my status before God is secure, his love for me is unchanging, his favor over my life is unchanging, rather than do that, rather than look at the performance of Jesus, for my security, we look at our own performance. And so then I'm not thinking there's no condemnation. I'm thinking, how am I doing before the Lord? How am I performing? What am I failing to do? What am I doing? And then it's an up and down. And sometimes when we sin or when we sin badly or when we sin repeatedly, then we just sort of distance ourselves or we think God must not approve of me anymore. And we sort of separate ourselves from God, wondering if God really approves us, what we do approves of us. What we do is we sort of penalize ourselves or we feel like God has penalized us. And we sort of think, well, I must need now to do some kind of penance. I must now do some kind of penance to make this up so that I can now be in God's favor again. I wasn't God's favor when I was converted for sure. When I was born again, for sure. But this says there's therefore now, now no condemnation. We forget that. We look at our performance. We say I'm condemned. And now I must do something to be accepted by God again. And so we go to the penalty box. I was reading a guy this week, and he, was, he used the penalty. This is not original with me. He used the penalty box illustration. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever been to a hockey game. I'm not an NHL fan. Don't really know much about it. But this spring, my, my son and I went to a Stars game. Uh, because I won tickets off the radio. Just call me caller number 10. That's who I was. And so uh, I won the tickets, and uh, I don't want to critique the radio station. I'm not going to mention them. This is being recorded. <laughs> but they were lousy seats. I thought, come on, you, I was expecting to sit with the team. I thought I'd be on the bench and sitting with the team. The radio station's given me. the sports. One of the sports talk stations gave it to me, but in reality, they were way high up. But so we watched the game. It was great. I'm not a hockey fan, but I sure loved it and, and thought about actually starting to follow it. I just really enjoyed it. But here's the thing. I don't really know any of the rules of hockey. And from what I can tell, there are no rules. <laughs> I was watching the game, and I was thinking, I mean, you can bash a guy's head up against the glass. You can, you can get in a fist fight. And what happens is, what happens is there's all this kind of stuff. I'm thinking, I'm watching it. I'm thinking, is anything prohibited at all? Like maybe firearms? I don't know if somebody's going to pull out a fire. Is some guy pull a knife? I don't know. What is anything prohibited? But every now and then, the refs, they call something. I don't know what they're calling, but they call something. And here's what they do. They put you in the penalty box. And this is, this is fascinating to me. I do watch other sports. And so you can foul out of an NBA game. Or you can, you know, get out of control and yell at an ump and get thrown out of a baseball game. But I don't know of any other situation in sports where you just get a time out. And this is what it is. The guy who's out there, I, I don't know, once you knock someone unconscious, then you get a penalty. I don't know. you got to go in the penalty box. And it is like shameful. The whole arena sees you. And you have to go sit. You're separated from the game. You're separated from the team. And you sit in a box for like, I don't know, it seems to me like it was about two minutes or something. Now, after the first service, somebody who knows about hockey came up and told me it's called the sin bin. I didn't know that. But okay, the sin bin, that makes sense. You sinned, and so you go sit in this bin. But you're by yourself. And it is like a toddler timeout. I'm serious. No one talks to you. There are no toys. You do not get a juice box. You are sitting there by yourself. And it's sort of like, young man, I want you to think about what you did out there. When you knocked him unconscious, I want you to think about how much that hurt him. And when you have thought about your actions, then you can come back in the game. But until you can play nicely, you're going to be in this box. 
That's what it's like. So I said, it's really strange. You infraction, and then you're just kind of pulled out of the game. And the guy I was reading was saying, that's sort of what we do. We, we don't live oftentimes, but there's there for now no condemnation. Condemnation. We sin. We all do. And when we sin, we think, well, oh, man, I've probably got to be separated over here for a little bit of a time out. He says, here's how we feel. We, we feel guilty and condemned. That's the penalty box. I'm guilty and condemned. 20,000 people look in this guy. You, you, in the box. 20,000 people aware. There's shame. There's condemnation. Look what I've done. Maybe nobody else knows what I've done, but I know what I said. I know what I thought. I know what I uh, looked at. I know what I did. And, and there's this condemnation and, and this guilt. We lose our joy. We lose our joy. We take our eyes off Jesus. We look at our own sins. And we put ourselves in the penalty box. We feel far from God. I'm not in the game. Not with the team. I'm over here. Sidelined, marginalized, in the penalty box, paying for what I've done. He says we distance ourselves physically and emotionally from other believers and don't fellowship with them. So rather than looking at Jesus to find grace, rather than looking at his people to find grace, we just say, ah, man, I have had a bad day. I'm not going to community group. After how I acted today, no way. Someone might ask me what's going on. I don't even want to, I don't even deserve, none of those people did what I did this week. Somebody says, how are you doing, Christian? Not, not just politely, but wants to know how you're doing. How are you doing? I'm not saying anything, and I'm not really. So rather than connect, we separate ourselves, penalty box, penalty box. We disqualify ourselves from service and ministry. Oh, I couldn't be used by the Lord. Who am I to pray for somebody else after who I am and what I have done? I can't serve. I can't help anybody. I can't be a blessing. So we, we're in the penalty box. We're not in the game. We're not serving. We're not helping. We're not blessing anyone else. We're not helping others look at Jesus because we're not looking at Jesus. And lastly, he says, we do things to prove to God that we deserve his grace and an invitation back into the game. Sometimes it can even feel righteous. Well, I'm just not going to separate myself. And then after a while, after I felt really bad and done that penance, then God will see how really bad I feel, and God will welcome me back into the game. That is all the complete opposite of the glorious truth of justification, which says that when we fail, we come to him. And we receive from him grace upon grace. We celebrate what he has done for us. We receive his forgiveness afresh. We, we come to him and recognize who he's declared us to be and how he is working in our lives, what he has done for us in Christ. See, the problem with the penalty box mentality is it's an up and down relationship that's based on how we're doing, not, not how god what god's character is it's based on our performance and not god's so you can you can have vast shifts in the middle of a day do something really bad in the morning i'm in the penalty box god disapproves of me kind of down self-focused introspective burdened by how bad i am god's distancing himself from me afternoon have a surprising opportunity share share your faith with somebody and witness feeling good i'm not in the penalty box i just scored the game winning goal the crowds cheering i shared my faith yes now i'm really good god must love me that's great get home um lose my patience my temper with the kids oh now i'm back in the penalty box again go to bed depressed i'm just uh when am i ever going to change i've been having the same attitude for the kids since their whole lives somehow mysteriously wake up early read my bible the next morning Whoa, I I read the Bible. Yes, I know God is now accepting and welcoming and loving me again. That is no way to live the Christian life. That's not how we're intended. We're intended to live it with this identity firmly in view. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the banner over your life, favored by God. That is the headline. That is your story. That is your DNA. That is your character, how God views you as a person. That is your your individual, how God relates to you individually as those who are accepted and loved by me. Not that our character is perfect. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that God views us 
as righteous in Christ and welcomes us based on the performance of Christ. It's a legal declaration, but its effect is not just legal. It's ultimately to be relational to us as well as the chapter shows at the end. Now, what we're going to see in the next verse is that it's not just a legal statement, but there's an empowering truth to this that has to do with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free. So what he's saying is that you're you're no longer condemned, but you have been, and we'll look at this, but you have been set free. You have been set free. You are living set free. That's what we're calling this little mini-series, Set Free, because I think this chapter, which talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, is talking about the Holy Spirit bringing liberty in our lives. As a matter of fact, the Spirit is mentioned, I believe, 19 times in this chapter. And the Spirit is connected to freedom. You have been set free. Uh, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. There, there is a connection between the Holy Spirit and liberty or freedom. We find this in other places in the Bible as well. Verse 1 tells us that we are free from the penalty of sin. We're not condemned. Verse 2 speaks of another kind of freedom, that we are free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying the law is sinful? Is he saying the law is death, that there's death? That's the characteristic of the law. That's not what he's saying. Matter of fact, he said the opposite. In the previous chapter, the law is good in and of itself. But what he said in 7, verse 7, previous chapter, 7, 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. He's not saying the law is sinful. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That's sin. That's not the law that produced that. Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So he's saying that the law, which is good, in his situation, he wasn't even aware of what coveting was until the law announced what coveting was, and then he realized he was a, a coveter, he was covetousness. He, he was guilty of covetousness is what I mean to say. He was guilty of that because the law revealed that. It was sin that grabbed hold of that and produced covetousness in his heart. So the law reveals our sinfulness. And the pronouncement of the law is death over us because the law is perfect, holy, righteous, and good, and we're not. And so the law pronounces death. Over us, it is. It reveals our sin, and it uh, and it announces ultimately our death. And so, when we see the law, that is the result. And so, its exposure of sin it doesn't bring it doesn't bring with it the power to put to death sin. It doesn't bring with it the power to obey the law. The law doesn't give you the power to obey. That's what he's getting at right here. I saw the law, and it revealed my sin, and and I was condemned. But something happened so that now I'm in a no-condemnation state. What is that? Well, Jesus came. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So he sent Jesus, God in the flesh, and he did what the law could not do. The law could not uh, bring forgiveness. The law brought judgment. But Jesus comes and brings forgiveness. Jesus obeys the law, and then Jesus dies for lawbreakers. Jesus dies for our sin. He, he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus doesn't sin, but he comes in the flesh. And for sin, that, that, that phrase, for sin, is a, is a reference to a sin offering. So Jesus comes, makes a sin offering, dies. He condemns sin in the flesh. So there's no condemnation for the believer in Jesus Because there's already condemnation in the sacrifice. Jesus, in essence, dies as our substitute. Uh, He dies and is condemned in our place. And so that's what he's saying. There's the the law which brought death. The the penalty of the law has been uh, experienced in Christ because God came and did what we could not do for ourselves. We could not find life in the law. 
We found death because we're guilty. But something has happened differently. There is salvation in Christ. And now, verse 2 again, the law of the spirit of life has set us free. Has set us free. There's only one way to be saved. It is not through keeping the law which brings about the sentence of death and judgment upon us. Last week I made an offhanded statement. Someone helped me pointed it out to me this week that was probably confusing at best, and it reflected something I don't really believe. Uh, but it was the idea that there's sort of two ways to be saved. You can be saved by law obedience. You can be saved by Christ. There, there's only one way to be saved. The, the implication of what I was trying to say is if you're not Jesus, you need a Savior. There's only one person that didn't need a Savior, and that's Jesus, because he wasn't born in sin, and he never broke the law. He was righteous. He was God, is God. He is God. So none of us ever, not even hypothetically, could obey the law and be saved. The law pronounces death to us. We're born in Adam. But if we are in Christ, then something different has happened. These verses make an important point to us that we are freed from the penalty of sin and we are freed from the power of sin. But the flesh, he's saying, the law of sin and death, the, the flesh never gives us the power to obey, but the spirit does. We've been set free by the law of the spirit of life. What he's saying is the law of the spirit of life is the new covenant. It's not seeking in the flesh to obey an external law code, which we will always come up as sinful there, but it is a transformative work in us. The new covenant is the gift of the Spirit in us. This is how it's talked about in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel said, I prophesied, I will give you a new heart, God speaking, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the new covenant, there is a new power. We not only have a new status, verse 1 is we have a new status and a new identity. Verses 2 and particularly verse 4, we have a new power. We now have the Holy Spirit internally transforming us. God declares us righteous in Christ and joined to Christ. He now is transforming and changing us, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit who transforms us. We are free from the condemning verdict of sin, and we are given His Spirit. This is another gift. So we're given the gift, if you could hold out one arm, so to speak, we're given this glorious gift of no condemnation. And then right after it, there's this another, there's another gift. There's the gift of the Spirit who regenerates and gives us new life and then empowers us to live this new life. Not gutting it out, not trying on our own to be right with God or obey Him. The Spirit changing us. He gives us a new identity But it's not just a legal status. He also makes us new people. He also makes us new people. That's glorious. Look at verse 4. Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So now we are in a different place. We have chapter 8 is about the indwelling Spirit. Now we have the indwelling Spirit. We're not living according to the flesh, seeking to obey the law. And often when we think of the flesh, we think of the end of Galatians, where the works of the flesh are vile sins. And so we, oftentimes when we think, oh, I'm walking in the flesh, if we were to say something like that, what does that mean? Well, I'm really, I ate too much, I drank too much, I was angry, I was greedy, I was a glutton, I, whatever it is, I was... Uh, I was selfish. I was just totally walking in the flesh. So we tend to think of flesh as always doing those kind of things. But it is the flesh as well that seeks approval from God by our own human obedience. That's a work of the flesh too. The flesh never gives us the strength to obey God's law. But the Spirit changes us from the inside and works conforming us to the image of Christ, changes our desires and gives us the power to walk with God and to walk in His Word, to obey His Word as well. So the Christian life is life in the spirit. The spirit is 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 going to work in us and here's the first thing I think the spirit does in us is the spirit points us to Jesus. 
What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, everyone who's a Christian has the Spirit. If you look down at verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So we, are, we have the Spirit of Christ. We are in the Spirit. We're called to walk. We're spirit people. We're called to walk in the Spirit. The first, I believe, the first thing that happens to know if we're walking in the Spirit is are our eyes on Christ? Because the Spirit will always shine the light on Jesus. The Spirit will always start with there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Spirit will draw our attention to who Jesus is and what he did. Well, yeah, but what about conviction of the Spirit? Doesn't the, doesn't the Spirit cause us to look inward, the conviction of the Spirit? Well, sure, the conviction of the Spirit does cause us to be aware of our sin, but never to stay there. To, it calls us to freedom, to run to Jesus. If the Spirit shows you your sin, it's so that you will then look to Jesus. The primary position of the eyes in the Christian life is to look up and is to look out. It's not primarily to look in. Though the Spirit does call us to look in for conviction, but when we do, it's so that we then may walk in the freedom that the Spirit has bought for us by looking to Jesus and realizing there is therefore now no condemnation. Ephesians 3 tells us that, that one of the works of the Spirit is that He shows us the love of God, the love of Christ. He shows us how deep and how wide is the love of Jesus and convinces us. The work of the Spirit is to convince us of the love of God and to secure us in this no condemnation status. The work of the Spirit is to secure us in our identity, in our justification, so that we walk in that identity, following Him, conformed to Him, and He is making us what He has already declared us to be. He has declared us righteous, and now He's changing us practically. And that is all the work of the Spirit. So the Christian life is about looking to God and being dependent on the Spirit who's given us to change us. God lives in us to change us. The Christian life is not look at the law code, seek to, seek to live it out in the flesh. That is condemnation. That is death. That is a pronouncement of guilt if that's where we're looking. We look to Christ. We look to the Spirit. We don't need, life change doesn't happen by the law yelling at us, telling us what to do, and giving us no power to do it. Life change happens in Christ looking to Him, empowered by the Spirit to be changed by the Spirit. This is how Ray Ortland said this in his, in his book I was recommending. I think this is spoken very, very truthfully. He says, We do not need more frightening punishments and more withering scoldings. We need the all-sufficiency of Jesus applied in rich measure to our deepest points of personal need. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. He internalizes the triumphs of Christ crucified within the depths of the human being so that our inclinations start changing from evil to good that's what the spirit does he takes the work of christ and and works that in us so that we're aware of jesus and what he's done and our attitudes our desires begin to be changed by the spirit that's how the lord changes us the law he says cannot do that the law cannot change our inclinations from evil to good the law tells us to pump harder but the holy spirit makes springs of living water flow from within the law tells us to pedal faster, but the Holy Spirit fills our sails, and that is the power of real holiness. See, we want water, and the law says pump harder, and the Holy Spirit brings springs of living water within us to change our desires, to change our heart, to change our attitude, to change our inclinations, to change us. It's, it's not just a legal verdict, though that is glorious, Glorious and never, never tire of celebrating that. But that legal verdict is our identity and the spirit then frees us to live as God has called us. We don't, see, we don't start with grace. Yeah, I'm saved by grace, but everything I get from conversion on is my own effort, my own flesh, my own strength. That's not it. It is the spirit who works in us and through us. Is there any effort on our part? Yes, absolutely. 
But that needs to be qualified with this, that it is a spirit-empowered effort. It is a grace-driven effort. It is not the effort that I ever could produce on my own if God was not at work in me. That is the accent. So we really can say justification is by grace and sanctification is by grace. We really can say that because it is the spirit who works in us. F.F. Bruce was a a well-known scholar from the previous century, excellent Bible commentator. This is what he said about this passage. He said, Christian holiness is not a matter of painstaking conformity to the individual precepts of an external law code. It is rather a question of the Holy Spirit's producing his fruit in the life, reproducing those graces which were seen in the perfection of Christ. Let me, when a quote's so dense it has to be exegeted, maybe it's not helpful. I don't know, maybe it wasn't a helpful quote. But if we get what he's saying, it's helpful. What he's saying is based on this text is that it's not painstaking conformity to the individual precepts of an external law code. It's not me in my flesh looking at the law and diligently seeking to obey that in every way. That is not the progress of the Christian life. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit from the inside in a transformative work. The Spirit transforms. The law does not. In a transformative work in me that... Uh, that produces the life of Jesus in us. So you notice it's when, when I read Galatians, I don't read about the fruit of Craig, and you don't read about the fruit of your name. You read about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Because it's the Spirit that's changing us. We're involved in that, but it's the Spirit that's doing that. That's why he can say it's the fruit of the Spirit. And he reproduces the graces which were seen in the perfection of Christ. So what he's saying is the Spirit comes in us, and he starts producing the beauty of Christ in our lives. This is hopeful. This is a, the Christian life is completely hopeful. Comple- and not just one day in glory. It's hopeful right now. It's hopeful right now. Here's where this really, this is where it really, pardon the pun, this is where it's really fleshed out, if I could say it that way. Let me ask you a few questions, because this is where we really see how these truths land on our soul. That God accepts us, he's given us the gift of forever acceptance and love, and he's given us the power of the Spirit. These gifts. Here's how we know if that's alive in our hearts. Are you more aware of indwelling sin or the indwelling Spirit? Which are you more aware of? Which do you think about more? Which talks to you more? Which do you feel the effects of and... Which do, well, not just feel, which do you believe is stronger? I believe Romans 8 is talking about the triumph of the indwelling spirit over the triumph of the flesh. That's what he is saying. Are you more aware? Are you more aware of the power of the flesh or the power of the spirit? Are you more aware of how God has worked in you or how you have failed? Are you more aware of God's work in you, the the Spirit's presence to change you, or are you more aware of your shortcomings? Which which are you more aware of? If you're married, which are you more aware of? If you're married and your spouse is a Christian, which are you more aware of in your spouse? Are you more aware of his failures? Are you more aware of her weaknesses and the flesh in her life? Or are you more aware of the Holy Spirit working in her, walking in the Spirit to change and to give her inclinations of walking with the Lord. Which is it? Are you more confident in God's power to change you or your power to sin? Are you more confident in God's power to change you or your your proclivity to mess it up and to blow it? In other words, is your approach to the Christian life baseline defeatist or is it baseline victorious? Which, which is it? Because if the Spirit is in us, if God is in us, then I think we have every reason to have a hopeful attitude. I think we have every reason to be, to have a vision of the Christian life that, that is, that is at its nature victorious ultimately. That God is at work in us 
Are you most aware? This is the bottom line. Are you most aware? Most aware that there is therefore now no condemnation. Are you most aware that your status in God is that one who is declared righteous, accepted, welcomed? And that your performance is being empowered and changed by the Holy Spirit, that God is with you. God has not called us to an externalized religion, which is a bunch of rules out there that we keep in our own strength. God has called us to a transformative faith where the Spirit of God indwells us. We are in union with Christ, and he is at work in our lives. I think it's easy to be more aware sometimes of failure and defeat. And, and this text does not say that we ignore any of, we ignore sin or anything like that. That's not the point of the text. But the point of the text is very clearly to highlight our status in Christ and the gift of the Spirit who empowers us to live and to walk with him. There's such grace because God's doing for us what we never could do. Verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God is doing what we could not do. And that is wonderful. That truth protects me from the despair of my failure and the arrogance of my success. That truth roots me in Jesus, where it's not about Life's not about evaluating primarily my failures and successes. It's about looking to Christ and celebrating his success and receiving his power to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And all the while living in the awareness that I am secure in God, that I'm living aware of that security, that I'm living aware that I'm accepted that I don't earn his love, that his love is inseparable. No one or no thing, including me, can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. It's living in that reality, confident in Christ, rooting my confidence in Christ, rooting my confidence in him. See, verse verse 1 tells us we're not condemned. Verse 4 tells us we're new. We're new. Renew. We are in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is making us more like him. Jesus provides victory over the sentence of death and victory over sin. We are dead to sin. We are alive to Christ by the Spirit, and that is glorious good news. He's producing that in our real, actual lives as well. I'm not detailing how all that works because the text doesn't. I'm just wanting us to get these headlines in verses 1 through 4. No condemnation, the power of the Spirit to change us. That is that perspective. See, in growing in Christ, the Christian life is so much about perspective. It's so much about where we're looking. So much about where we're looking and what we're believing. And if we're looking in these verses and believing this, that makes all the difference. That changes everything in our lives. Sin defeated. See, we are we are giving a new status in this passage, declared righteous, a new status. We have a new position. We are in Christ. We have a new experience, liberated by the Spirit, set free from the law of sin and death, a new experience. We have a new power. The Spirit of life is what he calls it. We have a new lifestyle. We are walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In one way, I think we could say we have a new religion. We have a new covenant that it is not an external law obedience in our strength or something in the flesh, but it is an internal transformation by the Spirit to those who believe and are in Christ. The Holy Spirit transforms us and changes us. I love this statement that Ray Ortland made in his book about this. He says, in Christ, we have a new status, a new identity, a new future. God has given us his life-giving spirit. We have been supernaturalized. I think he created that word, but I like that. Have you ever heard of a naturalized citizen? There are no naturalized citizens in the kingdom of God. We are supernaturalized. The Holy Spirit gives us new birth, faith in Christ, a new status, and a new life. If we are here today 
if we are here today with an ounce of love for Jesus, and I believe you have much more love for Jesus than that, but if we're here today with an ounce of inclination towards Jesus, that's a supernatural miracle. If God had left us on our own, we'd never have that. If you, if husbands, if you love your wife as Christ loves the church, if you want to love her in that way, if that's your desire, that's the work of the Spirit. If you want your children to know Jesus and walk with Him, that is the work of the Spirit. If you're wanting to reflect Him to other people, if you're wanting to see people that don't know Christ come to know Him and experience His freedom, that's a work of the Spirit. We are supernaturalized. God is changing our attitudes and changing our perspective. He's doing what the law could not do. The law could say, do this, but give us no power. He's saying, Jesus did this, and here's the gift of the power. How much better can it be? Jesus did it for us, and now he's giving us the power of the Spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus. And all the while, our status can never change. It will always be loved, accepted, declared righteous, and welcome before God. In my tenure as a pastor in this church, to my memory, I have never closed a sermon with a poem. Typically, that's a little trite and a little cheesy. But I'm going to do it today, and I have selected a cheesy poem. This poem, it's a ditty, I would say. It's a little little ditty. But I thought in, it, it just reflected the truth of this passage in a wonderful way. And so I'm going to read this to you and send you out. You're going to fly out of here. You'll see in a second. You're going to fly out of here because of this poem. Here it is. To run and work the law commands yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. It gives us wings. Now, Red Bull did not come up with that statement because this poem was written written way before the Red Bull commercials that said something about giving you wings or something. What he's saying is that the law does not empower you to obey. It's not just looking at the rules and gutting it out. The gospel, the grace of God, focusing on Christ and his work, the spirit, he calls us to himself, and the spirit enables us, gives us the wings to fly. I love that truth. It's just a different perspective, isn't it? It's a different perspective. It doesn't deny our participation, but it accents it appropriately. That life changes because of the work of Christ. Life changes because the grace of God. Life change comes in the power of the Spirit. And so how good is that, that we can look to Him and receive His work and respond accordingly, all the while walking in the security of our Savior. You are in your Savior's hand and always will be. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at Grace Church Frisco dot o-r-g Thank you.